0: Good morning. Good to be with you all this morning. Well, we have been working through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And last week, uh, Steve Kubik finished chapter 2 through verse 11. And so this week, we're going to tackle the next two verses. And we're only going to look at two short verses, verse 12 and 13. Um, That may seem like, what are we going to talk about for 30 minutes? But there is so much packed into these verses, rich theology, rich doctrine, rich application. Um, So, we have our work cut out for us this morning. All that to say, this is a very important text, and it's some of the most important I think the scripture has to offer us, related to the Christian life, our walk of faith. These verses, they're packed with motivation for us to obey Christ, and they are giving, giving us hope and encouragement that God is behind the willing and the working in our lives to effectuate the obedience of faith. Now, these same verses, they've also been misconstrued in the past, and they've been wrongly interpreted. Paul has been made out to say something he never intended, and so we'll investigate that. We also see a tension in these verses, a tension between, on one hand, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man as it relates to our sanctification. Now, we won't fully resolve the tension, but we will discuss how we should think about it and how the scriptures reveal to us how to think about that. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, Paul writes, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, before we get into the meat of the text, something we saw last week in Steve's sermon was the word, therefore. And this is an important part of this text as well. It starts out, therefore, my beloved. So we can't ignore that. It's the sort of saying a a so then. And Paul, he's he's relating something he's just mentioned to something he's about to mention, and he's showing a connection there. That's why he's drawing us back to something he's already said. So what has Paul just said? Well, in verse 3... Paul tells the Philippians to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And then in verse 5, he explains more of the motivation behind their humility, which is looking to Christ's humility. Christ's humility. Philippians 5 says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. So, Paul, he's urging the Philippians, he's urging us to consider Christ's example of humility and ultimately his example of obedience, okay, as a motivation for what he's about to say next. So, notice in verse 8, Paul says, Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient, by becoming obedient. And then the next thing he addresses in verse 12, our verse this morning. Is as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. So, Paul, he addresses their obedience. He addresses their obedience. And what he's pressing into is that Christ's example of obedience should motivate us as followers of Christ to obey. Paul's essentially saying, I'm about to discuss Christian obedience, and as I discuss it, I don't want us to forget who we model this after, right? Where we get our motivation to do this. This is Christ Jesus our Savior who obeyed, even to the point of death, death on a cross. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. Now, before we move on, let's just hover over the word obedience for a moment. As Christians, I think we're all really familiar with grace, right? We all know grace through and through, for by grace we have been saved through faith. This is an amazing Christian doctrine. In fact, this the doctrine of, of salvation through grace alone is what separates Christianity from every other world religion there is. It's unique in Christianity. So, this is a, it's a core doctrine of the faith. Now, when I mention the word Christian obedience, what comes to mind? Is that a foreign concept to any of us here? Do we know what Paul's referring to when he mentions the word to obey? Obedience, it's vitally important for the Christian. In fact, the second half of verse 12, where Paul says to work out your salvation, is very much related to obedience. The working out of your salvation is a teasing out of what obedience is. Okay, the two are related. Ultimately, I think we, we probably all know this, but our obedience in the Philippians' obedience was not to Paul, it was to, to God, to Christ. When Christ ascended after the resurrection, he told his followers not to only make disciples, but to observe all that he commanded, right to obey all that he commanded. That's Matthew 28. So our obedience, you can think of it as sanctification, it demonstrates that our faith is real through the fruit that we bear, that our justification was real. And the fruit that we bear is is evidence that we are born again, that we are true children of God. Now Paul, in the next verses, he gives some practical examples of what it looks like to obey. Look at verse 14. Verse 14, Paul says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And then, and then he teases out how they obey. How do they obey? Continue reading in verse 16. He says, By holding fast to the word of life. By holding fast to God's word. So we, we obey by holding fast to and submitting, coming under the Word of God, the Word of Christ. Now we have to, we have to ask this question and, and look at what the Scriptures say about how import, important obedience is. How important is obedience after coming to faith? I'm not, I'm not talking about our justification here. I'm talking about our working out of that justification through the obedience of faith. Hebrews 5.9, it says this, "...and being made perfect..." This is referring to, to Christ... And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And this is actually referring to an ongoing, continuous effort, not a one-time thing initially. Hebrews 12.14 says, Strive for peace with everyone, and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Does that verse tinge your heart just a little bit? Okay, let me further dive into this we can't forget the warnings about the results of disobedience. These are all through Scripture as well. We see this in Ephesians 5, five, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. We see it in, in Romans 8.13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body you will live. Okay, so our obedience, our sanctification is vitally important. The scriptures are very clear here. Those who live according to the flesh in unrighteousness will not inherit the kingdom of God. And remember these warnings, you might think they were written written to unbelievers, but these were written to Christian churches, those who are born again, those who are regenerate. You know, it's interesting, a side note here, one of the main reasons during the Protestant Reformation the roman catholic church refused to accept salvation by faith alone salvation salvation by faith alone was because they thought it would lead to immoral living it would be a license to sin because if someone can say i've been saved through faith i can do whatever i want right that was their main fear but it's interesting that if we know the scriptures god doesn't give the christian that option god doesn't give the christian that option there are these warnings all through scripture that are guardrails for the Christian to test our faith, to see are we producing the fruits that lead to salvation? And if we're not, that's something we should consider. Was my initial confession of faith real, or did I deceive myself? These are God's mercies to us, these warnings, for the Christian. Additionally, these warnings, they presume a believer's personal responsibility for obedience. Personal responsibility responsibility We are responsible for it, both initially by obeying the gospel to repent and believe, to be saved, to be justified, and afterward in obeying Christ and his word through our journey of sanctification. Now let's get to the meat of this text here. The work out your own salvation. I briefly mentioned before that to obey is related to what Paul says next. So he says, Therefore, my beloved, verse 12, as you have always obeyed, So now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So Paul, he's relating the two ideas here. So um, to obey is teased out or it's further unpacked in the term work out. Now here is where the confusion comes in. Because I just want to make this clear what Paul is not saying. What Paul is not saying here. He is not saying that we can add to our salvation through good works. He doesn't say work for your salvation we don't gain approval from God through good works that's not how this works we are declared we are not declared righteous by our good works that's not how it happens that interpretation is not only a direct contradiction to the rest of what Paul writes in Philippians but it's a direct contradiction to the New Testament as well we see this everywhere salvation by faith alone in Christ in fact the only other time Paul uses the word salvation In Philippians, as in chapter 1, it's right up front, chapter 1, verse 28, he says this, This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And that from God. So right away, Paul makes clear their salvation is from God, not of their works. And then again in chapter 3, verse 8, Paul says, In order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, You can think of that as as works under the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's the heart of the gospel, right? That is the heart of the gospel. That when you turn from sin and repent for sin and trust in Christ, you are given a righteousness that is not your own. It's not your own based on anything you've done in the past. It's a righteousness from the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And that righteousness is given as a free gift. And if you're here this morning and you have not accepted Christ's gift of of salvation through faith alone, I would just ask you to consider this this morning. This is the most important thing you can can hear from the sermon is, is who is Christ and have I accepted him as Lord and Savior. But again, this makes clear this is not a righteousness of our own. Paul's not saying that here. This is a righteousness that comes from someone else that you accept through faith. So Paul is not urging the Philippians to work as a means of justification. If that were the case, he'd be contradicting what he said in chapter 1, verse 28. He'd be contradicting what he said in chapter 3. And he'd be contradicting the rest of his words in the New Testament. So that would be completely incoherent. We'll rule that out. So what is Paul saying? Now I want to take a look at the Greek here. The Greek word translated as workout is the word katergazamai. Katergazamai. And the definition of this word is to do or accomplish or produce. Think of it to carry out or to work out. Okay, it's not a working for, it's a carrying something out that you've already received. Now, that may not completely clear it up for us because you can still maybe make the case, okay, I'm going to produce my salvation by my good works, okay? The key then is to consider what the word salvation is referring to. What is salvation referring to here? Because when we think of salvation, we automatically go back to when we were first saved, when we believed, when we were justified, right? That's a past event. That's a historical event. The moment we believe in Christ, that's our salvation. But did you know... There is a present and a future sense to salvation as well. There's a present and a future sense to salvation. John MacArthur, in his commentary on Philippians, says, believers have been saved, are being saved, and will be saved. Now, here are some examples from Scripture of each of the three tenses to salvation. Here's a past tense. This is probably the most familiar to most of us. Ephesians 2 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. Past event, it's a done deal. Here's a present tense. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. That's an ongoing, current event. Now, here's a future sense, and this might be the most unfamiliar to us. Romans 13.11, Besides this, you know the time, that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Again, he's looking forward to a future sense of salvation. Now back to our verse. Could this be what Paul's referring to here? Work out your own salvation. Remember, Paul's not talking to unbelievers here. He's talking to people uh, who know Christ and know the gospel. He's not talking to people who need to repent and believe to be saved. No, it's clear that Paul is writing to Philippians are Christians to work out a salvation that they have already received through their obedience, through their sanctification, something not yet produced, achieved, or carried out. Now, we see hints of this also in other places of Philippians. Philippians 1, verse 6 talks about this future completion of our salvation. It says this, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, began, you can think of that as your initial justification, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. We'll bring it to completion. So our salvation, it's brought to completion as we are sanctified or perfected through our obedience. Obedience is the working out of our future salvation. We pursue it, we accomplish it through the obedience of faith. Salvation is not only something we receive, but it's something we actively participate in through our life. Consider Romans 7.4. Here's another description of this, so you can see this from a different angle. Okay, Romans 7.4 is a description of what this working out of our future salvation looks like. Paul says, You have also died to the law through the body of Christ. Past event, you've died to the law. It's our justification. So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, and here's the ongoing part, in order that we may bear fruit for God in order that we may bear fruit for God. As God continues to sustain your life and my life, we have future fruit that we need to bear for him and his glory. So Paul also highlights this future sense to our salvation in, in uh, the next chapter of Philippians, in Philippians 3, verse 12. And just pay attention to how, he, how he's describing this. This is something he has not yet achieved, but he's pursuing it. Philippians 3, verse 12. Not that I have already obtained this or am perfect. No, he has not been perfected yet. But what does he do? I press on. Pressing on is, in a sense, working out that salvation. I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Okay, It's not something he has achieved, but he presses on in obedience to make it his own. Do you see that? There's a future sense to salvation here. And this is not a passive pressing on. This is not a passive obedience. We need to press on to make it our own. One commentator notes that the verb katagazamai is not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing effort. It's a continuous and sustained effort. We see this in Paul's letter to First Timothy where he writes this. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this. For by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Okay. He's not justifying himself, but he's working out a salvation already received through faith by persisting. In Matthew 24, Jesus says this, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. There's an endurance element. Here's the bottom line. There is a way that leads to salvation and there is a way that leads to death. So, As a Christian, if we find ourselves in unrepentant sin, lack of evidence that God is working in you, lack of obedience, lack of bearing fruit for God, these are signs that you might be on the wrong road. Okay, the road that leads to death. And these are God's mercy warning, his guardrails for the Christian in Scripture to make make sure we're on the right road. Okay, so quick summary here before we move on. To be clear, the working out of our salvation, it's not about our justification. It's not. It's a text about our sanctification. It's about our obedience. A text that urges us to press on to what we have not yet achieved, the working out of our salvation, which takes place when our sanctification is complete, when we meet Jesus, and ultimately when we're glorified with Jesus. It's a living out the salvation you have already received through faith. Okay. Gordon Fee, he puts it this way. This is the most succinct way I can think to say it. He says, this is an ethical text. It's dealing with how saved people live out their salvation. What, what Paul is referring to, therefore, is the present outworking of their eschatological, that's a future, salvation. That issue is obedience, pure and simple. Okay. Now, out of fear of staying too much on the subject of what we're doing we have to turn the page here and look at the other side of the coin. We do have a role to play. However, God is ultimately causing this miracle of obedience. Notice in Philippians 3, verse 12, verse 12, Paul says, I press on to make it my own. Why does Paul press on? Because Christ Jesus has made him his own. What is the basis for Paul pressing on? The basis is that Christ Jesus has made him his own. That's the basis. So here's the other side of the coin. Work out your own salvation for, you can think of that word as because, because it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Church, this is not an insecure thing in the least bit. We have, and we can have all confidence in the working out of our our salvation because God has made us his own. And God is working In us through his spirit. This is an interesting Greek word used for work here. That work is the word energeo. Energeo. And that may sound familiar to some of you. It's actually the source of our English word for energy. Energy. And that's the right way to think about God, how he's working in and through us. He's He's energizing us, he's empowering us to obey, to be sanctified, to work out. Our salvation. So having begun our new life in Christ through the power of the Spirit, believers are perfected by the same divine power. It's the same God. And if he's saved you, he will sanctify you. They go together, hand in hand, and it's through his power that that, that happens. Colossians one twenty nine is a great example of how Paul struggles with the power that God has working in him. He says, for this I toil, I toil You can think of that as as pressing on. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. What enables Paul's toiling is God's energy that he powerfully works within him. And we've got to be careful here because God just doesn't take over and do it for us. He's not just like, we're not robots. No, we are still doing the work, but God is empowering us to do so. Now, that same Greek verb that I mentioned for work out, the word katargazomai, it's translated work out here. Paul uses that in another chapter, Romans chapter 7. And I want to highlight this usage of the, the word and compare it to how he's using it in Philippians chapter 2. Romans 7:18, Paul says this, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to, katergazamai, Carry it out. Paul doesn't have the ability to carry it out here. That almost seems like a contradiction to what we've just seen in Philippians 2, because Paul has said, Work out your own salvation. But here, Paul says, I don't have the ability to work it out. So, what is the difference here? Did you notice in Romans 7 what Paul referred to? He referred to his flesh, he referred to the flesh, in my flesh. I don't have the ability to carry it out. This is exactly right, right. In his flesh, he lacks the ability to carry out the good. In Philippians 2, something more than just our flesh is carrying out the good. God is working in it. His Spirit is empowering it. Left alone in our flesh, it just simply would not happen. It would not happen. Another interesting point here, it's not just that he enables our obedience through his power, but he gives us the will or the desire to obey. Look at verse 13. He says, For it is God who works in you, both, both, to will and to work. So the will he's referring to here is actually your will. It's my will. Okay? So he's working in both the will to obey, the desire to obey, and effectively bringing it about by his power. And, Guess what? We desperately need both gifts from God. We need the will and we need the power. You got to have both. And I'll explain why. If he only gave us the will to obey, say he only gives us the will so we have a desire to obey, our desire would be unfruitful. We'd be failures in practice, right? That would be demoralizing in, in Christian ministry. We'd never see the the, the success that we're hoping for and overcoming our sin and and seeing God's work through us. Now, if he only gave us the work element or the power to obey, but not the will, we would be grudgingly obedient. We would not be joyful. We would not obey from the heart. We would be unwilling, resentful doers, which is not pleasing to him. Remember God, in other places of scripture, he says, I love a cheerful giver. Right? not the fact that someone is only giving, but they're doing so with a cheerful heart. The motivation of the heart matters to God. And it's pleasing to Him when our heart and our affections and our desires are tuned with His will for our life. Okay? God's pleasure is to both give us the will and the power to carry it out. And not only does God desire a heart-motivated obedience, but so does Paul. We haven't discussed this section of verse 12 yet, uh, but Paul says, As you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. So what does Paul expect more obedience in his absence? Perhaps one of the reasons is, is so that their obedience won't be found to be fake. Do they only obey when Paul is with them? Okay? Can, can they obey more from the heart when Paul is absent? Because Paul and God, they don't, just, they don't want people-pleasers who just pay lip service. Right? God wants obedience from the heart. Paul, he describes what this looks like in Ephesians 6.5. This is probably one of the most clearest examples of what heart-motivated obedience should look like. And he's comparing a master and a bondservant, and how a bondservant is going to obey the master. It says this, bondservants... Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling. We see a lot of parallels here to our verse. Obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will, that's a will to do what God wants, a good will as to the Lord and not to man. A lot of parallels there. And you notice that the term obey with fear and trembling. That's the same thing we see in Philippians 2.12. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We have to remember that is not a domineering fear. It's not. It's a reverential awe in the believer and who God is and what he's doing through you. That's what it is. It's not a, I'm scared of what's going to happen. It's a reverential awe of who God is And what he's doing to you. That's how we joyfully obey. That's how we do it joyfully. Okay. Let's turn the page now. Let's discuss the tension here. Let's discuss the tension. Maybe there isn't tension or you don't see it. It's the first thing that I saw when I dived into these texts. Paul tells us to work out our salvation. But then he said, it is God working in you. Both to will and to work both to give you the will and the power to carry it out. Okay, so which is it? Is it us? Is it God? Well, it's actually, it's both. It's both, because God is working in and through us. It's like if I were to ask you, who wrote the New Testament? Some of you might say it was God's, God's saints, people. And that would be right. Some of you would say it's the Holy Spirit of God. That would be right, right? It's God working through us. Now, there's a reason that God placed both of these texts back to back. There's a reason he doesn't do things happenstance. There's a a purpose behind it because there's a danger. There's a danger here in having a strict or limited focus on either ourselves or God as it relates to sanctification or as it relates to our obedience. And here's the danger. If we only focus on self... If we only focus on self, we bear the burden of accomplishing sanctification. And guess what? That's, it's hopeless. It's not going to happen. It won't happen. And if you do achieve some level of perceived obedience, we become self-righteous about it. We become prideful about it because we're the ones doing it. Do you see that? We might even become a Pharisee. Now, if we overlook our own responsibility and assume God will do it all for us, we become passive. We might even become apathetic, because look, if God is doing it all, why do I need to get out of bed in the morning? Right? Why, why do I want to just sit here in bed and see what God is going to do? I'll just see what he'll do. That's actually a wrong mindset. okay. These commands to work out our salvation, to press on, to strive, to toil, to persist, they're all here for a reason. And God means them. He expects a continuous and sustained effort on our part as we fight the good fight of the faith. So God tells us that his power is working in us so that that we don't lose heart, so that we will press on and expect success in our Christian walk. Why? Because God is bringing it about by his power. Power is a motivation. His power is the bedrock support that just propels our obedience. It is. Now, we discussed earlier that when Paul writes that God wills and works in our life, this will is, is his ability to give us a will, to gift us a will, to give us a desire to obey. This is where we need to be really careful. Okay? Because just because he creates our will to obey, that does not mean it's not ours. This is, again, this is really key. God is able to give us a desire in such a way that it is really ours and we are really responsible. This is biblical truth. Now, I'm going to give you an example of this in the scripture. And as I read this, listen to how Paul refers to God's work in the heart of Titus. 2 Corinthians 8, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 16. Just pay attention to God's work, what God does, and then who takes ownership of what God does. But thanks be to God, who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very very earnest, is going to you of his own accord. Is that... That's an amazing verse to me. I, I love that verse. It doesn't give us everything, but, but it shows that God put earnest care into the heart of Titus. So God put it there. It wouldn't be there if God didn't put it there. That's what it says. But, but Titus, then, being himself very earnest, is going to the Corinthians of his own accord. So the earnestness that God put there is now Titus' earnestness. Do you see that? So God is sovereign over our hearts. He gives us the will and the power to carry it out. However, that will is our will. It's our will. We are the ones doing it, and we are responsible for doing it. And I, I know this is difficult to understand. God hasn't made every part of this clear in his word. But he's given us what we need because if we are responsible for obedience, yet God brings it about. We're responsible, yet he brings it about. That should drive you to your knees in prayer to God. Because you're responsible. But you can't do it without God. Right? So his design is is to make us seek him in prayer and earnestness for his power and his spirit to work through us to effectuate this salvation that we've already received through our journey of sanctification. Okay, that's his amazing wise design that we seek him in prayer and earnestness to live out the christian life okay we've covered a lot of ground and i'm going to just try to summarize it here for us so that if you've been spacing out you can just remember the summary and it will be good all right after a christian comes to faith god expects continuous and sustained effort to obey christ and his word to increase in sanctification, and to live out our salvation. The motivation for our joyful obedience is looking back at Christ's obedience and it's trusting God that he will give us both the desire to obey and empower us to carry it out. When we acknowledge that we are fully responsible to obey and yet God's power is bringing it about, both passivity and self-righteousness are excluded. Church, I'll leave you with this this morning um, just as an encouragement. We don't walk the path of obedience alone. We don't. The creator of the universe, he's working in you. You are not alone in fighting your sin. Okay? Your future salvation, persevering to the end, is ultimately in the hands of God. And you are utterly and fully secure in God because God is faithful. I want to leave you with this text now from 1 Thessalonians 5 very applicable to what we've just discussed. Paul writes, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. He will surely do it.